we, right at the end of the service, uh, I showed a picture of a lady from Liberia, and we have her picture again. Go ahead and show it. Not, not me, yeah, there she is. Uh, we showed this picture, and this was a lady in Liberia who had a very serious need that Buzz Beecham showed, told us about, and uh, he said that she, her husband died. She, I think, had seven children. She makes uh, like $110 a month. And thank you so much. We collected an offering at the door. This was just a real quick, uh, you know, hey, let's collect some money for her and over $1,000, almost $1,100, plus some more that trickled in after the fact that I, I didn't get connected to this yet. And, and so that's, that's awesome. And, you know, and I, I think what it says is we know that God has asked Christians to care for the poor and needy. We know that to be true. I mean, Scripture talks a lot about that. And, and most Christians I know are more than eager to help somebody who's in need. If, if somebody asks you for help and you feel like it's legitimate or somebody in our church has a, has a serious financial need, I mean, we rally around that person because there's just something in the heart of a Christian, a compassion that we want to help people out during those difficult times. Well, you know, one area that maybe uh, when it comes to giving of our money that we don't do real joyfully is in the area of taxes, right? Uh, in the area of the forced charitable things that we often have to do when we look at our paycheck stub and we see all those things coming out of it and we're like really you know uh that's a huge percentage of my check that i got and it goes you know to who knows what and and we find that christians are notorious at complaining about the fact that we have to pay taxes that sometimes go to places that we feel like aren't being used really wisely and we don't feel like our money is used in the best way possible right don't raise your hand but i know a lot of you feel that way because a lot of times um, a lot of Christians are conservative when it comes to economics and, and, and politics, and so that translates into being very tight-fisted with our money when it's forced out of our hand to help or to serve people who we don't think maybe are doing their part in the transaction, right? And, and so today, as we look at this passage where Jesus really comes the closest to ever addressing anything political in his ministry, I think there's some really good truths that we can take away from it. Now, the point of the passage We'll be clear on that. It's not necessarily the, the, all these application things when it comes to our, yours and mine taxes. They're making a, a trap for Jesus again. But I think the principle is there that we can learn from and really apply into our lives on how we should handle some of this stuff. And so we're going to go back to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. A very familiar passage. Most people maybe who don't even um, claim to be Christian have heard this passage at some level. But I think there's a lot for us to, to learn, and obviously the brilliance of Jesus again to see in this, in this passage. So, Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to, and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they, went and they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
and they marveled at him. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth, God. It, it helps us to break out of our uh, worldly ways of thinking, how that we can easily, uh, Monday through Saturday, uh, be inundated, be desaturated in worldly philosophies, worldly ways of thinking. And God, they're oftentimes so subtle, they sneak in and, and get into our minds, God. And it's only through the washing of your word that allows us to think with clarity and to be led by the Holy Spirit and to handle uh, things that are difficult in our lives and things that are challenging in our lives and things that we don't even agree with in a way that is Christ-like and it points other people to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So in our text today, it's Tuesday. Now, it's going to take quite a few chapters here, quite a few verses to work through this final, what we call the Passion Week of Jesus. Just two days before was Palm Sunday, which uh, was two days in the text. It was uh, three or four weeks, four weeks ago uh, when Roy preached that sermon. Jesus came into Jerusalem, and you remember how he was received. He was received by the masses as a conquering king. He came in riding upon a donkey, and the people put their palm branches down. They were uh, cheering him. It, it was a, a crazy scene. It was incredible. Nothing like Jesus had experienced, although Jesus obviously, as we've seen through this whole book, has attracted the masses. But this is much more public. And so Jesus is received by thousands as a king. And the religious establishment of the day, we know from if we track through Mark, these people have been after Jesus since he began his ministry. I mean, they've been after him, trying to destroy him, trying to bring him down. They felt very threatened by the fact that the people loved Jesus. They loved him. They, they, they flocked to him. Jesus loved them. Jesus uh, reached out to people that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders would never have anything to do with. And so they looked at Jesus with great scorn, with great jealousy, and uh, his popularity among the people uh, bothered them tremendously. And the people, I mean, from the, from the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, all they ever received was, was judgment from those groups. All they ever felt was condemnation from those groups, whereas Jesus came to release them from their burdens, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the days added to their burdens. They just tried, kept piling on more and more and more things. And Jesus, you remember, he told him, he said, I'm here to make your burden lighter. I'm not add more to it. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they always had this attitude of, why can't you get your act together, people? Why can't you get it together? Now, as we know, and sometimes, you know, when we're in a situation, it's really, really tough to see the truth. We, we, we're blind to our own blindness. We don't see the things that we don't know. And the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day, they had this philosophy that had come up among them that wasn't, it's not biblical, but it had developed. It basically said that if they could repent for an entire day, if all of Israel would repent, and if they could keep two consecutive Sabbaths perfectly and holy, then the Messiah would come and deliver them from their uh, oppressors, from these Gentile oppressors. So you can see that these religious leaders and these, these Pharisees particularly, they had good motives sometimes for get your act together. Let's get it together, Israel, so the Messiah can come. But as we learned last week, I mean, there was a hardness of their heart. There was just this incredible, incredible stone-heartedness they had within them that no matter what Jesus did or no matter what he said, they would not be convinced that he was truly the Messiah. So they were envious and they were suspicious. 
And so things are escalating. We're on t- at Tuesday, Monday, the day before, he had cleansed the temple. He had went into, as we talked about last week, he went into the place where they considered their, their Jewish identity. I mean, this was the place where everything happened spiritually for them. And Jesus went in there and he ran people out. He uh, threw over the tables of the money changers. He created a major, a major stir among the people, the religious leaders. And so they come to him and they said, you know, basically, who do you think you are? And they set this first trap that we talked about last week. And Jesus, in return, told this parable where about the vineyard. And he, at the end of the point, if you didn't get to, to hear the sermon, I encourage you to go back and watch this great passage of Scripture. But it kind of ended with this idea that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you, the Jewish people. It's going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to the church. It's going to be given to Jews and Gentiles alike who are part of his body, the church. And so no longer... Are these things going to happen in the temple? The temple is not going to be the focus. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the focus. But with all this going on, I mean, the, he looked at Pharisee. I mean, he basically slapped these guys right in the face with this truth. It's going to be taken from you. And they did not receive that well. And so now they're even more intent on tricking him and getting him arrested. So they've devised another plan. They're come, getting ideas in their head how they can bring him down. And what they need to happen is they need the people to turn on Jesus, or they need the Romans to uh, basically see that Jesus is a threat to the peace of Israel, and they need to go and get him as a, as a threat to them. And so what we have here, we have, look at verse 13, we have the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body, this is kind of like the, the Supreme Court of Israel, which the Romans allowed them to have these ruling, this ruling body underneath Romans' authority, and they, this was made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, the high priest was on the Sanhedrin, and these were the ruling body. In verse 13, they send a very interesting couple groups to see Jesus. They send the Pharisees and then some of the Herodians. Pharisees and some of the Herodians. This is definitely a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend here because the Pharisees and the Herodians have zero in common with one another absolutely nothing in common in fact they would never form an alliance they would never even get along if it wasn't for the common enemy the pharisees were the most religious people of the day and of of the jews and then the herodians were the least religious people of the of the jews the pharisees were devoted to the law of moses the herodians as their name herod they were devoted to rome and to herod and so the Herodians were sellouts. They were known for their sensuality. They were known for corrupt living. They, they supported the government. They supported Herod and his corruption. And they basically were just falling in line with Herod, who, although raised a Jew, Herod wasn't truly a Jew. He was, a, he was not born into a, a, ancestrally a, a Jewish family. They converted to Judaism, probably because it was advantageous to them. But they didn't live like Jews, the, the, the Herod, Herod dynasty. And so this was, um, this Herod in particular, he was the one who had John the Baptist killed. This was a bad dude, a really corrupt guy. But the Herodians followed him. And so you have these two groups that could not be so different from one another. Here they were teaming up because of their one thing that they had in common, which was their hatred for Jesus, their desire to bring him down. It says to trap him. In his talk, so this is the second of four traps we're going to see in this passage, where they attempt to get Jesus arrested. 
So the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they want to bring Jesus down because of his teaching, his theology, but that's not good enough for the Romans. The Romans won't go and arrest a guy for his theology, for his teaching. They need something more. They need an insurrection. They need to know that the peace is being compromised, that this guy, this guy who's claiming to be a Messiah is actually a threat to Rome. And so they're going to have to figure out how to do this, but Jesus has always been very extra careful on his words, right? As we track through this, you've noticed that Jesus was very careful not to say, in fact, a lot of times when people would make a big deal and say, are you the Messiah? Tell us. He would, he would tell people not to go tell the truth, not to say things, because the time wasn't right. So he kept this stuff really close to himself. And in fact, Palm Sunday, when he came into Jerusalem, was by far and away the most obvious that he had been as far as being the Messiah and letting the people say that he was the Messiah. So the only way the Romans are going to arrest and kill Jesus is for his political views. Therefore, they needed these Herodians, they needed these guys to be present in here as they set Jesus up and try to trap him, so they'll run back and tell Herod, and they'll tell Rome, it'll get to Rome, what Jesus is up to. And so Jesus needed to be seen as a threat to the peaceful Roman rule of Israel. And so you see in verse 14, you may be scratching your head like, why are these people saying all this nice stuff about Jesus? Because we know that they don't believe that. And we know that on when Jesus says it's hypocrisy, we know that ahead of time. Let's just read that verse again, though. And they, the Herodians and the Pharisees, came to him and said, Teacher or rabbi, and I'm sure that was really hard for them to say that because there's no way they thought he was a teacher from God. We know that you're true. They didn't believe that. We know that you, care, you don't care about everyone's opinion. That's true. And you are not swayed by appearances. We know that's true. And truly teach the way of God. True, but clearly they don't believe that. I'm sure that as they're saying this stuff and they're trying to um, butter Jesus up, flatter Jesus to get him into this trap, I'm sure it's very, very tough for them to even say these things. And so Jesus is there and he's with the, the, the masses. Here they come. They walk up to him. They begin to say these things to him. And, and you, you ever had this happen maybe when you were in school or maybe you were one of the ones who put somebody up to doing this? I remember a kid in our school, and he was one of those kids who we began to, like, build him up, flatter him, and then basically he would do anything we wanted him to do. So, you know, if there's a substitute teacher who was in class that day, we're like, hey, um, and I won't say his name because a friend of mine from, from back, way back in high school started watching these, these sermons online and so I got to be really careful of the stories I tell now because they could get back to the people, all right, and make them look back. So no names here, but uh, this guy, he would, we, we could tell him, like, hey, man, you, you're crazy, bro. You, you'll do anything. And he's like, you know, yeah, I will. It's like, yeah, you know, man, you're, you're just the craziest kid in this class. Man, you just will do, every, you know, we just think about it, but you'll actually do it. Yeah, I will do that. I'll do those things. Well, how about the substitute teacher? Why don't you do this? You know, you probably wouldn't even go to that extent. And so we're building him up like, like he's invincible, like we're flattering him. And then the next thing you know, he's doing whatever that we manipulated him to do. I mean, it's crazy to, that they think they can actually do this to Jesus. They can like pressure him or raise the bar like, Jesus, you're, you're this and you're, you're so great and you're always truthful. So in this situation, Jesus, you've got to tell us the truth. You've got to give us the truth. You can't give us those wise things that you often do, which is to turn it around and ask us a question in return. We're building you up so you're on the spot in front of all these people that you have to give a straight answer. That's what their agenda is. 
And they really thought this would work on Jesus, that they could flatter him into abandoning his caution and compromising himself. But verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy. Obviously, he's the son of God. He's God. He knows what's going on here. And he says to them, why put me to a test in verse 15? Why are you putting me to this test? So what exactly is the trap or test? Verse 14, the second half of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they're trying to force Jesus to reveal where he stood on this ongoing political debate that had been going on in Israel for some time and would continue to go on. The debate was over whether or not Jews should pay not just any tax, but should pay a particular a poll tax to Caesar. Rome had imposed numerous taxes on the Jews, but the one the Jewish people hated the most was this poll tax. Why? Because this tax wasn't just on their land, it wasn't just on their goods, but it was on their very person. So follow the logic here. It was on their very person. So to the Jewish mindset, it implied that Caesar and Rome owned that person while they were truly God's possession. So you remember Rome and, and Caesars had, had set themselves up as deity, as gods. And so Rome did not respond very happily and very kindly to people who evaded the taxes. And so there, were, there was a movement among the Jewish people not to pay this tax. In fact, uh, historians had, have told us that there was a, a, an uprising that was led by a guy named Judas of Galilee and this guy named Zadok, who was a Pharisee, because they refused to pay this tax, and they led this insurrection. They had to go into hiding, and this thing didn't go away. I mean, it began to build and build and build and build, and you know that Jesus died around 33, 35 A.D., and later on this continued, and people got on board with it, and eventually it led to, in 70, where they just came in, the Romans came in, and wiped out uh, Jerusalem, just flattened the temple, and just destroyed everything, and it all had to do with this idea of paying taxes to Rome and whether they had to do those things and submit to the Roman authority. So Jesus, if he's seen as the people, by most of the people, as at least a rabbi, a teacher from God, but many at this point see him to be the Messiah. So what's he going to do? A rabbi could not support Roman law. He would have to support God's law, right? A rabbi, a teacher, he would have to. So if he supported Rome, what would that do? That would cause the people to abandon him, the masses to abandon him, and then the, the, the religious leaders then could move in and take Jesus or not have to worry about him anymore because his power would be insignificant. If he sides with the Jews, then the Herodians who were there listening and watching, they would run and report it to the Roman authorities that Jesus was advocating rebellion. Look, he's on board with these other groups. He doesn't want to pay the taxes. He doesn't want to do it. And so it goes back and reports, and they're already upset anyway, so they go and they grab Jesus for not paying, for teaching the people not to pay tax to Rome. And so the trap, uh, summarizing, if Jesus says yes, then his opponents could publicly discredit him as a sympathizer with Rome. But if he says no, then they could go to the Roman governor and accuse Jesus of rebellion. So two possible outcomes which the religious leaders had hoped for in this situation. So what's Jesus to do? What's he going to do? How's he going to 
answer this question, which was posed, in, posed to him as either or, or right? It's, it's, you got two choices. It's either this way or this way. But Jesus, obviously being always one step ahead, he says, bring me this coin, bring me this denarius, and let me look at it. So he calls for a coin, and it's a specific, a specific coin. It's a Roman coin, a denarius. It's one day's wage, and it actually is the same amount as what the poll tax would have been, one denarius. So he calls for this coin, and look, this coin would not have been just in any Jewish guy's pocket. The Pharisees definitely would not have one of these coins in their pocket. Any observant Jew would not be carrying around this coin with them. Why not? Because it had the image of the emperor engraved on one side, and then the inscription on the other side would read, in this case, probably more than likely, it would be Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So why would not a Jew or the Pharisees carry a coin like this? Because this thing was a little idol. It, it was. It, it went directly against what God had told them in Exodus in the Ten Commandments where he said in the Second Commandment, uh, Exodus 20, verse 3 and 4, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. So basically, this coin represented idolatry to the Jewish person. And so Jesus says, bring me that coin. Let's take a look at that coin. So verse 15, the second half, says, he says, bring it, let me look at it. And so they found one, probably right there in the pockets of the Herodians. In verse 16, they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness, whose likeness, Whose, whose picture, and then whose inscription, what's the inscription on this? He says, whose, in, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So they ask him this either-or question, and Jesus gives them a both-and question. And interesting, you may miss this, the fact that Jesus draws attention to the image on the coin and also the writing on the coin basically gives us a flavor of like, send this filthy money, this filthy thing back to where it came from. That's what you're to do. You, this little idol, this idolatrous little idol, send it back to where it came from. Send it back to Rome. So what Jesus was saying was, it was contemptuous, but it was very winsome, wasn't it? It was very winsome. Very careful with his words, how he, how he said this, as not to have the Roman authorities after him before his time. And there's a lot to learn from Jesus as we walk through Jesus. I mean, just I've gleaned so much personally, just the way that I'm so quick to have the answers and respond. And, you know, when you're dealing with an unbeliever, you always want to make sure that you keep impressing on them truth, 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 truth. But it's not always what you say. It's also how you say these things and the way that you frame it up and the love and compassion that's in your heart as you're saying it. And you, you can be right in the things you say, but it gets nowhere because of either the anger, anger in you, the defensive posture that you have, or the feelings of, you know, I don't like you because of what you stand for, and I'm going to tell you the truth in hopes it to change you. But there's really no love of God coming out of your behavior. 
Man, Jesus is so winsome, and he makes his point, but he does it in such an amazing way. So Jesus is not going to be a political revolutionary who's going to rail at Rome and go off at Rome, but he's also not going to be some uh, zealous national who's defending the boundaries of, of Israel in this case. He doesn't step into their trap they set for him, and the leadership realizes that they failed in their efforts to trap him again. One of the commentaries that I like to read, it's actually a Luke commentary, but it's by a guy named Daryl Bach, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary, and just a great guy. And He wrote this in, in the commentary, and it just says it so well. I just want to read it. It's on the screen. It says, This text is the closest to a political statement Jesus makes. It is not a comprehensive one, but it does reveal much about how he dealt with or de-emphasized issues of state. In many ways, Jesus' handling of this question shows that he is not interested in the political agenda of changing Rome. He is not a zealot. He is more interested that Israel be a people who honor the God they claim to know than being concerned with their relationship to Rome great there's so much there for us and then also flipping over to another passage where paul wrote in romans chapter 13 verses 1 and 2 he says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment so get the picture here okay jesus refuses to go off on not only a pagan evil sinful empire but it's one that's going to take his life in just a few days and he refuses to step into that and then you have paul who's dealing with the all the the roman empire and all the persecution that they're sending the way of the church And he tells us, he says, this authority, the very authority that's persecuting you has been set up by God, instituted by God. And if you resist authorities, you're resisting God himself. That's why Jesus says, pay taxes to a pagan nation, even one which is about to kill him. Because his kingdom is not of this world. He is building his church. He's going to build it through the gospel message not through some political agenda, not through some zealous nationalistic movement. He's going to build it one person at a time through the message of the gospel. So application for us, don't expect our government to act in a Christian manner. Just don't. Don't, they're, They're not a Christian institution. Never have been, never will be. God has called the church to be the one to represent him they have nothing to do with the church whatsoever romans 12 18 paul goes on to say if possible so far as depends on you live peaceable peaceably with all he says just live peacefully live a quiet peaceful life you go and love your neighbors as you love yourself you love me you lift up my name you share the gospel and you trust me even when things don't seem like they make any sense whatsoever Now, there are limits to being subject to an evil government. When when are the limits? When when do they cross the line? 
Acts 5.29, Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter and the apostles were preaching the gospel and they were told, you can't do that. You can't preach the gospel. And in, in verse 29 of chapter 5, but Peter and the, the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. So if we're told you can't worship God, we say thank you very much, but you know what? We're going to keep worshiping. We might have to do it in secret. We might have, like China, we might be persecuted and have to have secret church, but we're going to keep doing it. They might say, you can't proselytize your neighbors. Well, you know what? I can't love my neighbor very well if I can't tell my neighbor about Jesus, right? Because I can be nice and give them food and be kind, but ultimately, they need to hear about Jesus. And so if we're told you can't talk about Jesus, you can't share your faith with someone, we do it anyway. But praise God that we haven't faced that yet, right? Praise God that that hasn't been the case yet. Now, there are a few as you get into specifics, for instance, abortion. There, there are some things that are there that are, are tough to know how to deal with as Christians. And some people advocate a, a very, very like fierce approach to that. Others say, you know what, that's not the approach that we should take. We're not going to weigh into on that at, at today. But the, the, the truth is, the fact of the matter is, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Do it. Give it to Caesar. Send that filthy stuff with his image back to him. So we live in a time where you guys know everyone is divided, they're enraged, they're aggressive, they're adversarial. We're all driven by this, you know, by, by the news media that's constantly on there feeding us one side or the other, trying to get us worked up. And we're told, follow Jesus. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Render to God what's God's. Don't get caught up in the hate. Don't get caught up in the hate. You're not going to win your neighbor by screaming at him or her, right? We're not. We're not going to win our neighbors to Jesus because we've convinced them to vote conservative. That's not going to draw people to Jesus. They need to be drawn to Jesus. We should care about government. Government is God's gift. It's a, it's a common grace for us, and we submit to, to government for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of our Lord. That's why we submit, because God told us to, and we do it for him. We don't do it for them. And so the people of God, that's us, we're not anti-government people. God has placed it there. Jesus had every opportunity, again, to take, take a shot at Rome, to make a statement against its evil empire, but he did not do it. We're not anti-political either, because it takes politics to run the government for the government to form itself, takes politics. And we live in a democracy. Well, it's technically, I know, right, it's a, it's a democracy within a republic. That's different. So if I say democracy, somebody's going to come and catch me afterwards and say, no, we don't. But you get the idea, right? That we, we, we vote. We have a voice. And so we have a privilege to elect as much, much as possible those who are trustworthy and moral and align the most with our biblical truths and standards. Oftentimes, you're probably like me, you're scratching your head, saying, is there really a choice? Do I have a choice? The best thing we can do is pray, seek God's face, look at the candidates, and try the best we can to vote our conscience based on who lines up the best with the word of God. We're commanded to pray for our leaders. That means we pray for Democrats and Republicans. 
no matter who's in office, we pray for our leaders and lift them up. And we have a right, we have the right to be full citizens in our country, to fully engage and vote and be part of it. We have the right to contend in the marketplace for the values that make for a healthy community. But at the end of the day, our hope is not in political power. We will compromise the gospel when we start expecting too much from our government. What do we expect? You know what? I drove on roads today that were fairly you know, level and straight and not a lot of potholes, a few here and there, right? I, I, I was safe. I had a, we have an police, outstanding police force in our community that protects us. We have um, a, a military that defends our borders. It's a great thing. But don't expect too much from our government. The work of the gospel is about spiritual transformation, a transformation of the heart. Government cannot transform someone's heart. Only the gospel of Jesus can rescue and transform the heart. So people aren't changed by passing laws, plain and simple. We know that. People are directed and restrained by laws, but it's an important and critical difference. People are changed when their heart is changed for God and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last election, the major election, uh, like many of you, I struggled in, uh, you know, knowing, you know, what do we do here? And the words of John Piper oftentimes are able to kind of bring me to a spot where, you know, it's okay. I don't, I, I don't have to get worked up over this stuff. And he wrote this. Let me just read it to you. He says, we deal with the system. We deal with the news. We deal with the candidates. We deal with the issues, but we deal with it as if we are not dealing with it. It does not have our fullest attention. It is not the great thing in our lives. Christ is. And Christ will be ruling over his people with perfect supremacy no matter who is elected and no matter what government stands or falls. So he says, by all means, vote. But remember, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. 1 John 2, 17. So Jesus says, the money, the inscription, that idolatrous little thing there, hold loosely to it, send it back to Caesar quickly. He wants it, send it back. But here's the important thing. Render to God the things that are God. You see, this coin, it may have Caesar's image stamped upon it, but the truth is, what's stamped upon you and me? The image of God is stamped upon us. The image of God. And so, if we give Caesar what has his image, we give what has God's image to God, which is what? Us. And as I think Mitch mentioned earlier, it made me think, I need to silence my phone, sorry, I heard a ding. Um, what, what, may, what, what he read from Romans 1, or 12, 1, that's what I thought as well when I read this passage. And I'm sure he read over that and thought the same thing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God isn't looking for blood sacrifices in the temple any longer. He's looking for living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. That's what God desires. His image is stamped upon us. We're all his. 
every bit of us through and through. We don't hold some back. We don't keep some compartmentalized. He says, we're, we're all of us, it's, it's my whole self, my body, my physical self, everything about me is a living sacrifice. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. This morning, um, I was driving back from Mexico Beach really early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. I was driving back through little towns like Bristol and Bluntstown, Weewa and some of these towns. And as you're going through these little towns at 4 in the morning, and you're just looking mainly to make sure you're not breaking the speed limit because there's a lot, you know, there's only people you're seeing out there. But I'm passing a bunch of churches. And I'm passing these churches. I just begin to just to pray for each one of these churches and say, God, just work in their service today. Work in, in the people's lives. And then I begin to think. I, I thought, but specifically, what am I praying for? What am I asking God for to happen? Because as Jeremy mentioned, I mean, we come here, we do this, we need to be reminded, but so many times, reminded of what? What are we reminding ourselves of? And I think it really falls back to this. I think Paul sums up the entirety of the Christian life in this verse. You are a living sacrifice. Everything about you is to be presented to God. Everything you own, every passion that you have, every intention of your heart is to be given to him. And then verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to the world. He knows that's a tendency. We, we, we can get into the world, and we're there throughout the week, and it's easy to begin to accept their values. They begin to accept their attitudes and their spitefulness and their hatred. And, and, and watching 24-hour news, we begin to get bitter in our hearts, and I hate what's going on. I hate it. I hate it. And it begins to come out in our behavior because we begin to be spiteful, bitter people. And that's not winsome. That's not, that's not pointing people to the glorious joy of Jesus Christ. So we offer ourselves. We work within the system. We, we do it. We, we vote. We're part of it. But at the end of the day, we know that God rules all. And we trust Him. And we're not conformed to the world but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, his word, so we can test and discern what the will of God is. We can live our lives knowing, God, here's what you want from me. Here's what you want me to act. Here's what you want me to do. Here's how you want me to vote. And here's how I should conduct my life and take care of the poor and the needy and to serve those around me and, and minister to those in my church and make a difference in my community for Jesus. In verse 17, the end, it says, these religious leaders, they marvel to him. They're like, wow, you know, that's, that's a crazy answer. That's brilliant. What, what do we do? We got nothing. This trap, number two failed. One failed. Now two's fallen. Like, we got to come up with some, something better than this because this guy's way too quick and good for us. Because Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. And look, if we lift Jesus up, first and foremost, he says, I'll draw people to myself. I think... Here's our duty. Humble ourselves. Submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Get out of the way. Lift up Jesus. And people will still marvel at him today. Humble ourselves. Submit to the work of the Holy Spirit. Allow his word just to speak into our life day after day after day after day. And lift him up. Talk about Jesus. Bring his name up a lot. And then watch what happens. Because Jesus, there's something just attractive about him. There's something special. And it's way bigger than politics. 
It's way bigger than sports. It's way bigger than those other things that we put so much passion in because it matters, not just for this life, but for the next. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that so clearly and powerfully reminds us of what matters. And God, it's not a very fun thought if our hearts are in the wrong place to think about offering our bodies and ourselves as living sacrifices because we like our agendas. We like what we want like. And God, thank you for just reminding me. And God, I pray that those who don't know you very well or don't know you at all will, will see the truth that when we delight in you, you give us the desires of our heart. That when we make you the center, we find that your kingdom work and your will, we find great joy in that. And it's not a drudgery. We're not giving up anything to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. But we find a great expression of gratitude and joy because of what you've done and the way you adopted us into your family. God, and you knew us and you came for us before we could ever, ever consider coming for you. God, for anyone here who doesn't know you or those who are struggling with just the evil and the, just a celebration of evil in our culture, and they're, they're just wondering what to do and is there answers, God, I pray that they'll rest in you. They'll humble themselves and let the Holy Spirit work through them in their neighbors and their friends and their coworkers and lift up Jesus, make much of Jesus. In his powerful name we pray.